Welcome to the P4C Podcast. We are excited to reshare with you the last 13 years of teaching through God's Word at Passion for Christ Summit. Each week, the P4C Podcast delivers rich truths for your life, and we know you will be blessed. Our current series is from P4C 2021, Scripture, the Ultimate Authority. We now join Charles Cavanaugh for today's message. We hope you are encouraged and challenged. Where do you go when you need answers? Perhaps you have a problem or a dilemma. You're struggling with a conundrum you can't quite resolve. And you may go to a person whose wisdom you trust. It may be a parent or a pastor, a partner in business maybe, or a pal. Someone who has gone through the same thing, who's struggled through this or something like this struggle you have. Maybe they don't have any experience at all like you have, but they listen. And that's as good as as telling you anything. There are many sources in life. And you choose, you must choose wisely. Because not all counsel is good counsel. You may say, well, I go to the Bible. And that's a good answer. From the Lord's mouth comes wisdom. But there are some things not spelled out specifically in Scripture. Whether you shall marry Mr. A or Miss B. What school you should attend. Whether you should take the short way through town or the uh, long way on the bypass. But the truth is that the Bible brings truth to bear upon most every matter in our lives. Well, maybe not the bypass thing, but, but most things. There is wisdom from God to be applied to your situation. Any number of questions can be resolved by applying the truth of Scripture. But here's the question, and here's the danger. You will see the danger when I ask the question. Is Scripture just a better self-help book? Giving us how-tos on challenges we face. I, would, I go back and look at some of the messages I preached years ago. And it's, I'm amazed at how many of them begin with how-to. But, and, and it's not that the Bible doesn't tell us how to do certain things. But it is not just a how-to book. God help us, God deliver us from that sense that the preacher is the one who gets up and kind of gives us a, uh, an emotional massage and, and tells us uh, our best life is now and, and God has good things for you. But anyway, the answer to that question, of course, the short answer is no. No, the Bible is not just another self-help book, a success book. The Bible is much more than that. Scripture is ultimate truth. It answers the questions of origins and destiny, identity and autonomy, justice and mercy. It tells us who God is and what he requires. It does not 
tell us all there is to know about God because he's infinite. Now, this may shock or surprise you, but when you go to heaven as a believer, you will never know all there is to know about God because he's infinite. Now, that, chew on that one a while. But it does tell all that God would have us know of him. And just as important, how we can know him. Gratefully, it is inspired, infallible, and inerrant. Now, this is the claim, I believe, of Scripture, and it's the claim of us as evangelical believers, that the Bible is inspired, and we're going to talk about that tonight, infallible, we're going to talk about that, and inerrant. That's my subject. It is the ultimate authority. Now, you think about that. You have in your hand a Bible, I hope, and you hold the ultimate authority the Word of God. That's quite a thought that the God of the universe, the creator of all things, the maker of heaven and earth, the mighty God has revealed himself in this. That's amazing. That's just an incredible thought. So that's what we're going to look at in in, uh, Paul's letter to Timothy, his second letter to Timothy, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. The ultimate authority. And we'll begin by reading what should be to most of you, maybe all of you, a very um, familiar passage. In fact, many of you could probably quote it. If you're a new Christian, you may not be quite as familiar with some of these things, and that's okay. Uh, But many of you, if you've been raised in a Christian home or you've been in church for some time, this verse is not new to you, and perhaps you've heard a message or Many messages on this verse. But what I want to do tonight is for us to begin with the theme for a week and and to touch on some of the things that our other brothers will be preaching, Daniel later, Ben, Phil, and the breakouts all will, will hone in on this great theme that we have. The truth of God. So let's look. Paul tells Timothy, a a young pastor, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. As we, if you've been here before, you, I'm probably pretty predictable in some ways, and I have three main points. We're going to look at the source of Scripture. We're going to look at the sufficiency of Scripture. And then we're going to look at the success of Scripture. First, let's talk about, let's look at the source of Scripture. Verse 16, the very first part of the verse, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Your translation may say something Else, but it's something close to that. Is there any argument among us as to where this book of books we call the Bible originated? Perhaps there would be a skeptic here, uh, someone maybe with not the understanding, but generally speaking, if we say we know God, we know Christ, we're believers, we're evangelical believers, we believe the Bible and we believe it is the Word of God. We know 
as Daniel, my son, will expound upon later, that holy men of God spoke and wrote these words. We know that a tax collector and a doctor, shepherds and kings, wrote the various books and letters we now have. Men from different walks of life. But Paul tells Pastor Timothy and us that there is much more to this matter when we say, when he says, all Scripture is God-breathed. He tells us something more specific about the source of Scripture. The imagery here is stark. For the eternal, almighty, omniscient, and all-wise God is likened to a human speaking. Now, as I speak to you, I force the air from my lungs across my vocal cords, forming words to reveal what is in my mind and on my paper. At first, children communicate in this way only by crying or perhaps ooing or aahing. Later, they learn to form and speak words, sometimes to the joy of their parents, sometimes to the bane of their parents, but nevertheless, they do. When we speak of inspiration, the English word means breathe or breath from within, inspire. The Greek word in our text means God breathed. So inspiration speaks of God's activity in giving us Scripture. It is as though he forced his breath across his vocal cords and formed the words expressing what comes from his heart and mind. This is inspiration. This is the origin of Scripture. Now, there are at least two issues that arise from this brief phrase in this discussion. And they're in our text here. The first is when we talk about inspiration, we talk about the source of Scripture, we're talking about the entirety of Scripture, the whole thing. All Scripture is God-breathed. Sometimes we read certain portions of the Bible and wonder, I, I may... I think most of us have, like the begats, you know, or the Levitical law, maybe even parts of Job. You can kind of trudge through Job sometimes. Difficult places to understand just on the surface without some further help or work. But Paul assures us that none of the canon, none of the canonical writings is to be omitted from this claim. All Scripture is God breathed. So if you read through your Bible, you may trudge your way through certain portions of it, but you can be assured that God says through Paul that it is breathed by God. It is coming inspired by God. We do not mean by this that God spoke over his vocal cords, of course, since we know Scripture teaches that God is invisible. The first person of the Godhead, the Father, is invisible. We do not promote a mechanical theory in which we assert that the writers were forced to do things of which they were unaware or say things they did not want to say. They did not fall into a trance or have their personalities altered. We simply mean that the words of Scripture came from God. He is the primary source. He's not the secondary source. He's the primary source of what we read in this book we call the Bible. 
That's the entirety of Scripture, all Scripture. But this passage also speaks to the integrity of Scripture. We read this earlier together. I want to read it again just to point out something that supports the passage here. But I'm talking about the integrity of Scripture. Psalm 119. Excuse me. Not Psalm 119, but Psalm 19. And we read this together, earlier part of it. The law of the Lord is perfect. Exactly. Converting the soul. The the testimony of the Lord is sure. Making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right. Rejoice in the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. Enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So what Paul says is supported by this and other scriptures, and that is that we believe in the integrity of scripture. The psalmist expresses what the apostle explains. Why could the psalmist speak with such confidence regarding the integrity of scripture? How can we claim that the scriptures are infallible? In other words, incapable of error. Why do we preach this book as the very word of Christ? Because it is God-breathed. What else needs to be said to convince us? To convince us that we can trust this book. The source of Scripture, inspiration, guarantees the integrity of Scripture, infallibility. Scripture is not capable of error because God Himself is not capable of error. All Scripture is God-breathed. The whole of Scripture, rightly divided, of course, handled correctly, which will be the subject for our brother Ben later, is trustworthy. This is the source of Scripture. It comes from God. It is as surely the Word of God as though he walked up and sat there and began to talk to you. This is the source of Scripture. But the second thing I want us to look at is the sufficiency of Scripture. In verse 16, the second part of the verse, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. There is a great deal of discussion regarding whether the Bible has all that we need. And there are nuances to that discussion, which I'm not going to pursue too far tonight, but obviously if you want a math textbook, you don't go to the Bible. It is not a math textbook, nor would you do so for biology or even history. It's not that Scripture does not speak to these things at all, and when it does, it does so inerrantly. It does not give us error. The teacher of math, biology, or history will benefit immensely, greatly from a knowledge of Scripture. But when it comes to matters of faith and practice, of truth and life, the Scriptures are all we need. The Scripture is profitable. And when we say this, we do not mean it is beneficial in the same way many good books out there are beneficial we mean it is especially valuable, profitable for these things. 
This is the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, in what sense then is it sufficient? Well, it is su- Scripture is doctrinally suffici- sufficient. Doctrinally sufficient. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine. Now, when the New Testament writers use the word doctrine, its literal meaning is teaching. So if you just took it at its face value, it simply means something being taught. But the word developed into more than mere instruction, which is um, spoken of later in the text, just a matter of instruction. But doctrine came to designate a body of truth fundamental to the faith, a set of beliefs which could not be ignored if one claimed to be a Christian or a follower of Christ or one in the faith. The faith, very important word, two words there, the faith, because that referred to the Christian system of belief and doctrine as a whole. And we see the concept first in the book of Acts chapter 2, the apostles' doctrine is spoken of. They, they met together, they studied and taught the apostles' doctrine In Romans 17, Paul exhorts the church to avoid those who cause divisions contrary to the doctrine which you have learned. And we're warned not to be tossed around with every wind of doctrine. In Ephesians 4, verse 14. And we see sort of the pinnacle of this this evolution, this in right sense, this change, this evolving of the concept of doctrine. When we get to John, the apostle, in his letters, he has three letters. In our English translation, one is five chapters, then the others are shorter, just brief letters. But he uses this term, and he, he speaks of the importance of abiding in the doctrine of Christ. In fact, so important that we're not even to receive into our fellowship or give our ears to one who does not hold to this doctrine, this body of belief. That body of doctrine fundamental to the faith came to be codified in what we call the New Testament. Now, this is, this is really brief where we got our Bible. This is not what this sermon's about, but that's what we have now, this body of teaching in the New Testament, which, together with the Old Testament Scriptures, are the whole counsel of God. Our theology, our belief about God, what God says is doctrine. If you don't like doctrine, you don't like the Bible. Because it's very important. And we'll talk some more about that this week. Our belief system, what we call the Christian faith, is embodied here. We have no other basis for what we believe. It is profitable and sufficient for doctrine. It is doctrinally sufficient. But Scripture is also experientially sufficient, what the Puritans, Reformers would have called experimentally sufficient. We don't... When we think of an experiment, we don't think of something solid or we think of something we're trying to find something out about it. But experimentally, they meant experientially when we put it into practice. And Scripture is experientially sufficient. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Now, Paul paints a broad stroke with his inspired brush touching the whole of human experience 
and the application of Scripture to it when he says this. In this regard, Scripture has both a negative and positive effect and a positive and lasting effect. Important difference in two letters. It has both a negative and positive effect, influence, and a positive and lasting effect, fruit, produce, production. It's both negative and positive, corrective and instructive. Reproof includes proving that sin is in fact sin. And Scripture does that for us. And the convicting of the heart that it must be forsaken and repented of. So the Scripture is sufficient for that. It's not that God won't use somebody else's personal experience to to bring certain things to mind. But in the end... What we need is the Word of God. Correction is what uh, completes the work because it sets the feet on the biblical path. It is insufficient to say what is wrong. There must be a clear alternative. Scripture gives both. It tells us where we go astray. Later, uh, Micah will be speaking to this, your word have I hidden my heart that I might not sin against God. So it's both instructive and corrective. But um, Scripture is also instructive, not just corrective. If not, it not only points out what is wrong and corrects it, it trains us in the way of Christ. And perhaps this is the most thrilling and the most telling and the most exciting thing about Scripture is that it's not just a a book that lashes us for our sin, but it trains us up in the way of God. The word for instruction here is a word which means child training. And as children, children must be trained in all aspects of the life they are born into. So, the children of God must be trained in the ways of God by the man of God and the church of God using the word of God. And even us using the word ourselves, I don't mean to imply that we have to have another person. I mean, obviously God uses his teachers and they are a part of his work through the church, but, but you can be trained by the word. Churches and pastors often get distracted by many things when they have the all-sufficient, inerrant Word of God. Are you down? Be lifted up by the Word. Are you struggling with doubt? Be assured by the Word. Is temptation assaulting you? Be strengthened by the Word. The Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing apart asunder of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It is a lamp to our feet and a light for our path. We hide it in our hearts in order that we may not sin against God. Our God. 
It cleanses our way, our minds, and our hearts. It assures us of salvation, forgiveness of sin, and strength for living, and of a coming day when all that we know in part, we will have a complete and full revelation of. And even more than this, it reveals to us our great, almighty, saving God. Who could not hunger for such a thing as this? Thank you for joining us this week. If you have questions about P4C, visit our website at p4csummit.org. Or you can email us at info at p4csummit.org. We hope you can join us next week on the P4C podcast as we listen to part two of this message. May God bless you as you seek to passionately live for his glory each and every day.